Good morning to you, for those of you who weren't here during the first hour. Just a bit of an update with regards to John. He's uh, stuck in Messina at the moment, um, waiting for his hearing for asylum seat to be completed. The um, individual who was supposed to hear the cases did not turn up for work, so they have to wait. Hopefully on Monday he will be better. I don't know what's wrong. But hopefully Monday he'll be there so that they are able to be um, heard and Lord willing he can um, formally apply um, uh, to live in South Africa. And thank you for the men who graciously sent some gifts. Um, I was able to transfer them to him and uh, he's really thankful for that. This morning we return to the last subject in our series of church distinctions. Don't get me wrong, this is not the last sermon, it's supposed to be, but eschatology is such a wide subject. Each distinctive part of eschatology deserves a sermon. Now, I'm not going to do that. I am going to finish next week, Lord willing. I'm going to finish next week. Our focus will be on the topic of eschatology. That is basically the study of end times. Eschaton means end, and ology uh, means ology um, means the study of so the study of end times. How will things unfold in the end? Can we know? Can we be sure that there is a set of sequence of events that takes place? Um, after the church age, and is there a church age that will finish? Can we know for sure how God will end things? The simple answer is yes. Scripture has adequately revealed within its pages how things will unfold. There's tremendous clarity on the subject of eschatology. However, how we interpret it is the challenge. Now, while we want you to know, as elders, while we want you to know what we believe regarding eschatology, we also want you to know how we came to that conviction. And that discussion circles around hermeneutics. Throughout the series, all the elders pointed to the scripture as the foundation and the source of what we believe in this church. All of our distinctions pointed back to this is what the Bible says about this distinction. So to help you see why we end up, where we end up in eschatology, we will begin with the study of understanding the scripture as a whole as it relates to eschatology. So there are two important components that must be established first as we approach the subject of eschatology. The first being hermeneutics, and the second being the distinction between Israel and the church. So hermeneutics and then Israel-church relationship. Understanding these two essential components determines your eschatological outcome. In other words, if our hermeneutic is not consistent, then we will end up in a view that is not proposed by Scripture. 
if our hermeneutic is not in line with what Jesus says or the apostle says with regards to what the Old Testament says, then we will be guilty of changing the meaning of God's word. That is why hermeneutic is, hermeneutics are, is so important in the study of eschatology. So what I will do this morning is lay the foundation of understanding eschatology by looking at what hermeneutics produces, what the literal hermeneutic produces in the eschatological view. And then I will end by looking at, at Israel as a specific identity. So that's my outline. Hermeneutic and then Israel church relationship. And in between, I'm going to add some eschatological points that I will not identify today. I'm going to tell you what it is and then come back next week and then deal with them as they unfold chronologically. So if you want to know what happens next, you better come back next week. If the law doesn't happen, to come back before then. So the fundamental, there is a fundamental connection between hermeneutics and eschatology. It has and will occupy an essential place in the discussion of end times. Unfortunately, many read eschatological positions and make their mind up based on what they read in theology books, church dogma, or certain people recognized or respected individuals. I won't mention names for the sake of not mentioning names. I don't want to say, well, we disagree, disagree with this individual on this view. I don't think that is helpful in this context. We do not choose how things end because of who we read. If your eschatology is determined by a certain individual that you believe to be respected, that is wrong. You do not believe eschatology because of a certain church document. Just because we believe that there may be a pre-tribulational um, rapture doesn't mean that you must believe that. I want you to believe pre-trib, primo, millennial, reign of Christ, because the Bible says so. I don't want you to come to any eschatological view just because this church says this is our distinction. I want you to be absolutely sure that the Bible says that this is how it's supposed to happen. Hermeneutics, therefore, is foundational in having a proper understanding of end times. We ought to set every system aside and every respected person aside for the sake of allowing God to speak with regards to end times. Unlike covenantalists who interpret the scriptures through the lens of covenants and New Testament priority, we aim to honor authorial intent. Here's the importance. If, therefore, we are faithful in understanding the scriptural, literal, grammatical, historical sense of the word, then the outcome is not a system through which we interpret Scripture, but is exactly what God has imparted in Scripture. Make sense? 
If we approach the scripture the way that God wants us to approach scripture, then the outcome is not a system that this church holds to, but what God wants this church to believe about the end times. In other words, if the literal grammatical hermeneutic can be trusted as something that Jesus and the apostles used, then we can confidently say, God wants us to believe this about eschatology. Now, if a literal hermeneutic results in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, and it does, a seven-year tribulation period, and it does, a visible a premillennial return of Christ, and it does, a literal reign of Christ for a thousand years or millennium on this earth, and it does, and an eschatological eternal reign of Christ forever, and it does. If our literal grammatical hermeneutic results in that, then that is what God wants us to believe. I know that there was a mouthful. All that I'm saying is that if your hermeneutic is right, then you will end up where God wants you to end up and believe about eschatology. That's the point. Now, I will explain those terms next week. So then, hermeneutics of the Bible results in a specific eschatology. If your hermeneutics is wrong, you're going to end up in a wrong eschatology. Then what God said must be believed about eschatology. If you don't end up where God ends up on eschatology, then you undermine what God says about eschatology. It is that serious. Eschatology is not, choosing, is not about choosing the best system. It is not aligning yourself with the best people in, a best, in the best system. Eschatology is not a man-made system. It is what God wants us to believe about what he will do after this church period. Therefore, since God inserted into the scriptures its own hermeneutic, we have no right to enforce, change, overlay, add, or amend anything that the Bible does not reveal for itself, about itself, in end times. Eschatology, as with every, every area of theology, must be derived from an accurate literal grammatical hermeneutic. Now, there are those who say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we believe in literal grammatical hermeneutic, but we just look at it from the New Testament's perspective. We look backwards. No, that's not literal grammatical hermeneutic. Don't lie. That is not a literal grammatical hermeneutic. When you start in the Old Testament and work your way forward, literally, grammatically, historically believing all that is said, and then applying it as it has been said, till you get to the New Testament and Revelation, that is what a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic is. Now let me say this. A little, literal grammatical historical hermeneutic will result in a pre-tribulational rapture, pre-millennial return of Christ, and a literal thousand-year reign of Christ followed by an eternal state. If you approach the Bible, literally, that's where you must end up. Because that's how it is revealed in Scripture. Now you may say, that's a bit dogmatic and a bit arrogant. Uh, no. My point is not that that is what we believe. My point is that that is what the Bible determines what we should believe. So let's begin by understanding Old Testament hermeneutic as it relates to eschatology. What does literal mean? 
Well, it means exactly that. Literally, what the author said. That is what is meant. What God said, his writers wrote. What God spoke, his prophets spoke. Therefore, if God promises them that they will get a land, guess what? They will get a land. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah prophesied, I should test the OT students, <laughs> between about 760 to 740 to 690 uh, before Christ. Almost about 400 years, around about, I'm giving round figures, 400 years after the time of David and about 700 years after the time of the invasion or the conquering of the land, so after Joshua. During this time, notice what Isaiah says in chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is the southern region of Israel. Remember, split took place. Judah, Jerusalem, Judah, is separate from Israel. It shall come to pass that in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, I should say Yahweh, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us, uh, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of God, to the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowsheds, plowsheds and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Just until there for now. What is Isaiah talking about? A period where Jerusalem, which is on a mount, will be the highest mount in all the earth. Look at the text again. It shall come, verse 2, it shall come to pass that in the latter days that the mount of the house of the Lord, that is where the house of the Lord is elevated on, which is Jerusalem, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. That's pretty simple, right? If we understand that in a literal sense, it means that Jerusalem will be the highest mountain in all the earth. Now, there are those who say, well, in the region, and I, I could go with that. But then there are those who say, well, mountain doesn't mean mountain. It actually means administration or government. So think about that. This is not a literal mountain. This is a government or administration. So then God will reign through a government. Now let's take that term and insert it into the text. It shall come to pass that in the latter days that the government of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the governments. And all the nations shall flow to it. What is the it? It must be the governments, right? Does that make sense? It does not. No, no. It does not make sense. 
and shall be lifted up. So the government will be lifted up above the hills. Wait, hang on. So then what are the hills if the mountain is a government? What are the hills then? The other governments? Must be, right? No, because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because you have to change the meaning of the original intent. The question is, how did Israel understand this when they read this? Exactly as we understand it, as we read it, a literal mountain will be elevated and everything else will be lowered. Look at verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many people. When was there a time when Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the Mount of Jerusalem, was elevated above the other nations? When was there a time when God is in Jerusalem judging between the nations? When was there a time when the law went out from Zion, which is Jerusalem, the Mount of God. Do you remember a time that this has happened? No. Not if you take this literally. This has not happened. This speaks of a period that has drastically changed the entire scope of the world. There's a period that is still needs to take place where God is in Jerusalem and from Jerusalem there's a governance that covers the entire globe. Unlike anything that we have experienced before in history, verse 4 looks forward to a time that God will be on earth, that He will judge between the nations. He will be the one executing justice upon all peoples. When was there a time when there was no more war or need for war? Because that's what the end of verse 4 says. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Why? Because they are tilling the ground. They don't need to be fighting anymore. Because there's a time for peace. Look at verse 5. Here's the hint. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. He starts with Judah, but he ends with Jacob. What does Jacob stand for? The United Nation of Israel. When has Israel been united after David? It hasn't. So then, if we take this as a little, literal, grammatical, historical uh, approach, and we understand it in its natural sense, then this event is still future. Take note at the next section, verse 6. For you have rejected your people, a house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east. Um, I'm going to jump down in verse 9. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty. If we understand this correctly, then there is a day that will, f- will take place that there will be judgment and terror upon the earth. 
So then if the judgment is upon the people of the earth, then the section prior to this, which deals with God being on earth, ruling over the earth, also has to be on the earth. Both of these are literal scenes. The next section deals with the day of the Lord, the judgment that is to come. The section, chapter 2, prior to that, deals with a period that is commonly known as the kingdom reign of Christ. A kingdom reign that God will establish upon this earth. If we understand this in its literal grammatic historical sense, we can see that God commits to bring Israel to the land, restore them as a nation, bring about unification, and subjugate all the other nations underneath them as they reign with him from Jerusalem while God is on earth. That is what a literal hermeneutic in Isaiah chapter 2 will result in. What about the judgments on Israel? Turn to Isaiah 39, same book, 39. Look at verse 5 to 9. If you, you remember, Hezekiah goes and um, allows the Babylon, Babylonians to come into his kingdom and, and see what they have. And notice what he says in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord, uh, sorry, hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. He was bragging to them, see all that we have. And Isaiah says, you know what? You were dumb enough to show them what you have. Now it will be carried away. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons who will come from you. doesn't mean that it's going to be them, but later on, some will come from you, whom, you, whom you will father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Look at his response. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, the, the, the word that Yahweh has spoken to you is good. For he thought, that there will be peace and security in my days. <laughs> he misinterpreted future prophecy. And as a result of that, he doesn't fully understand what God will do to him and his people. They are going to go into Babylon for 70 years. 70 years later, I should say 90 years later, um, 90 years later, this takes place. They are taken and uh, uh, dragged away. I think it's 6 or 5, right, is the first deportation. And then 586 is the ultimate fall of Judah. It's 583 or 586? One of the two. 586, I think it is. So ultimately, God prophesies that they will fall. They will go into captivity. And what happens? They are literally dragged into captivity. It happens as God says, even though he misunderstood what God was saying. But look at verse 40, chapter 40. In the midst of the condemnation on Israel that they will be dragged away to Babylon, 
Notice what God says, comfort my people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry for her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for her sins. What is he looking forward to? Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then, what is that? What do we know that to be? A prophecy about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Prepare the way, which would be John coming in Malachi, speaking about John, who will prepare the way. So, yes, you're going to go into judgment. Yes, you will be in, in, in Babylon, in captivity, but that's not the end. I am going to show you that I will save you. How will you know this? I will send my servant. He will come. That is the first advent. But take note at verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and rough places plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be leveled and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. You know what that is? That is the second coming of Christ. When he comes to judge the world and he flattens the entire world. And all the world will see his glory. Tell me when there was a day when everybody around this globe saw the glory of Yahweh being revealed. It hasn't happened yet. What you see in the text is the literal expectation of the first coming of Christ and immediately after that, the expectation of the second coming of Christ. The Old Testament does not separate the coming of the Lord. So then, we can see historically that some things were literally fulfilled and then there are certain things that are not Fulfilled. It is interesting that he mentions about the valleys being flattened and the mountains um, and the hills being made low. What does that sound like? Isaiah chapter 2. Every valley is low. And there is one that is exalted up, which is Mount Jerusalem. There is going to be a catastrophic event that will touch the entire surface of this world. We know that to be as the day of the Lord, the great judgment. Old Testament eschatology focuses both on God's reign and His restoration on Israel. If He's going to reign, He's going to restore His people. That is a consistent hermeneutic in the entirety of the Old Testament. However, to change what God is saying in these texts is to change the very meaning and the intent that God has in these texts. So thus far we have seen that there will be a future kingdom on earth, a future restoration of Israel, judgment on Israel's enemies, sometime after the first advent. Now it does not give us a chronology. And the Old Testament does not give us a timeline. It just says that it's going to happen. And it will happen. Because God says it will happen. Let me state the importance of hermeneutics this way. 
In the Old Testament, there is no place for bad hermeneutics. What that means is that you, you don't get to misunderstand what God is saying. When he says to Hezekiah, I'm going to send you into captivity, yes, he misunderstood it, but God still accomplished it. It doesn't matter if you misunderstand it. It's going to happen the way that I said it will happen. And it was literally fulfilled in that same way. The very next section deals with the first coming of Christ, and which is followed by the second coming of Christ. Now we know that the first coming took place. But then he went up into heaven, right? Acts chapter 1. The same Jesus that you see going up into heaven will one day again return. That return has not yet taken place. The Thessalonians were worried about that return. Has he come back? Are we left behind? No, the left behind series has got it wrong. We will not be left behind. If we are going to accept that the promise of the first coming is literal, then it stands to reason that we would accept everything that leads up to the promise of the second coming would be literal as well. Old Testament expects the future events concerning the coming of God in the great day, the day of the Lord, to come about. So what does the New Testament have to say about this? How does New Testament hermeneutic relate to the Old Testament? Now, when it comes to the New Testament, we do need to move between the two, both Old and New, to see if the one changes the other. New Testament prophets and uh, apostles do not see themselves as deviating from Old Testament prophecy, but they continue on the same prophetical word. They sometimes add to it and explain it, but they do not change the meaning, not even Jesus. The meaning is never changed in the New Testament. So how did the New Testament prophets and writers understand Jonah as a literal person, Sodom and Gomorrah as a literal event, uh, creation as a literal event, invasion of the land as a literal event? Why then does it change when it comes to Israel? Because those who see Israel as the people of God in the Old Testament as an ex extension of the church, or that the church replaced Israel, change their hermeneutic when it comes to Israel. Yes, change their hermeneutic. That's not a literal application of the, the text. They also say that the prophets wrote better than they knew. Does that make sense to you? They wrote theology that they didn't fully understand. No. Unless you believe that they were somehow zombified in the process of prophetic writing, uh, which we don't believe, we cannot say that they did not understand. What they did not understand is the timing of the events. They didn't fully know how it will, when it will take place, but they knew what would take place. That's two different things. Because Jesus says, as David says, Paul says, Luke says, Peter says, as the, the prophets say. They understood what the apostles and the, sorry, what the prophets said literally. So, number one, under New Testament hermeneutic. A literal hermeneutic maintains continuity with prior revelation and is foundational for understanding future revelation. 
If you don't understand how things are going to develop in the Old Testament moving forward to the New Testament and future, you will not fully understand eschatology. Therefore, if prior prophecy was literally interpreted and fulfilled, why do we need to change the hermeneutic post-cross? We don't. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Listen to this prophetical word. I'm going to read from verse 5. They told him, this is the uh, wise men where, where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem of Judea, so that it, for so it is written by the prophet, in this case, Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, you shall, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, go to Micah chapter 5. Who is this Israel that Matthew speaks about? Some say, well, Matthew takes the historical prophecy and changes it to mean that that is the church. Let's go to the context of Matthew, uh, Micah chapter 5. <coughs> Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. What does that refer to? The first advent, right? The birth of Jesus Christ. So the prophecy in Matthew, in Micah chapter 5, relates, first of all, to the first coming. And notice the language that is mentioned of this one. He would be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So he's the eternal one who will rule in Israel. That is important. Where is going to be the region where his reign will be established? In Israel. Look at verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his, his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Wait a minute. Did that happen at the first coming? Did God establish peace in the Messiah? And did he reign from Jerusalem? Did he bring back all the fold of Israel to Jerusalem? No, he did not. Again, what you see is the first advent followed immediately by the second advent. There's a promise of peace. There's a promise of restoration. And there's a promise of one who will reign in Jerusalem. I don't see Israel or the king of Israel reigning over the nations today. I don't see it. 
a literal hermeneutic expects the first ad advent, why then does it change when it comes to the second? Secondly, a consistent literal hermeneutic provides prophetic clarity. What I'm going to do now is start in the Old Testament and work my way forward to the New Testament. Isaiah 11. Verse 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and spirit, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. What do you think that relates to? The first coming. Because it is fulfilled in Matthew. And I will point that out to you in a moment's time. This prophecy is concerning the coming of Christ. And it is literally fulfilled, keep your hand here, in Matthew chapter 3 verse 16. Notice what it says in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened uh, to him. And, saw, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. That Spirit descending on him is the fulfillment of the prophetic word of Isaiah 11, that the Spirit will come and rest on him. Look back in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh, and he shall, he shall not judge by what he sees, for he, uh, or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Hmm. Has that taken place yet? No. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Remember the language that was just spoken in Isaiah. Notice what it says in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress um, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. That is the fulfillment of what Isaiah says from verse 3 to 4, that he will come and he will judge. That has not taken place. The first advent, advent was him coming to bring salvation. The second advent is when he comes to bring what? Judgment. 
in order for us to skip the judgment, we need to receive salvation because of His first coming. Verse 3 to 9 in Isaiah includes these things, a mountain, a ruler, a glory that will cover the earth. We don't have time to read all of it. But if you note in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 11, notice what it says. Read verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Take note of that. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge or the glory of Yahweh as the water covers the sea. It will cover the earth. This is not a a, uh, um, metaphorical term. The metaphor is as the water covers the sea. But what is literal is that the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh in that day. The root of Jesse. Who's the root of Jesse? The one who came in verse 1 and 2. Same guy. Who shall stand as a signal for the people of him. uh, For the the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day he will extend his hand yet a second time. To recover the remnant that remains of his people. That is future. So in the same chapter, you have the prophecy of the first coming of the Lord. In the same section, you've got a period where he reigns and restores his people. And in the same section, there's a a, uh, promise of him ruling over all the earth while he restores his people. That is Old Testament eschatology. If the first coming is literal, the second coming will also be literal. If you interpret this as a little promise, you would understand that the first coming has come, and we acknowledge that. We will also understand that Israel will be restored. We will also understand that there will be a manifestation of His glory or the knowledge of who He is over the face of the earth, and He will subdue the nations and exalt the mount, because that is what it says. Now go to Matthew 24. The picture does not change in the New Testament. It remains consistent. A divine king will be on the earth, seated on the glorious throne, and the nations will be gathered to him, and he will come again. Matthew 24, take note at verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. Um, No, it's not 31. It is verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the signs of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the other. In other words, he will come and gather his people as he has uh, promised. (coughs) 
trying to see where um, it says he will sit on the throne of his father, David. Um, go to Matthew 2, I believe it's in that prophecy as well. <coughs> Sorry, it's uh, Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, 31. Uh, Luke 1, 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over his house uh, um, of the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. A throne, a nation, and a mount that he will reign from. The picture in the New Testament does not change. <coughs> Jesus nor the apostles do not change the understanding of Old Testament prophecy when it comes to the New Testament. Often the struggle is with symbolism or metaphors. Metaphors. So literal interpretation doesn't mean you don't acknowledge that metaphors and symbols are used to communicate. They do exist. But it doesn't change the literal meaning uh, in the Old Testament. God uses symbolism and he does use metaphors in, in his prophecies. But that does not make the entire prophecy a metaphor. We don't get to change how things end. We don't get to change how things are to unfold. God tells us how it will unfold. What do we do with the nation of Israel? So hermeneutics is important. Hermeneutics provides us with the perspective that there will be a king, that there will be a mountain, there will be a judgment, there will be a reign, and then there will be a restoration of Israel. That is a literal hermeneutic of the Old Testament. What do we do with Israel then? To understand Israel, you have to understand the covenant. And I will go briefly through it. Go to Genesis chapter 12. You cannot fully understand the importance of eschatology if you do not understand the covenants to Israel. Genesis 12, and I want you to take note of the, re the reoccurring phrase. Verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What was the recurring phrase? I will. I will. I will. There are no conditions in this covenant. God is not asking Abraham to do anything, but God is committing himself to Abraham. In chapter 15, 
God uh, calls Abraham and says to him, I'm going to reaffirm my covenant with you. And he puts Abraham in a deep sleep, almost like he did with Adam. But he puts Abraham in a deep sleep and appears to him in a vision. And prior to that, there was these animals that were cut aside and put on either side of each other, pointing towards each other. So there's this bloody scene that is taking place. And God puts Abraham in a sleep and tells him that I devote myself to you. And God passes through these animals, between these animals. And that was God's commitment to Abraham. Now to us that may not make sense. In the ancient Near Eastern context, the way that you guaranteed a covenant was not your signature. That would be nice. But what they did is they took an animal and they cut it in half. And they put the one half there and they put the other half here. And then they would say to the both parties in the covenant, let's walk through this. You walk first and then I will walk. Or let's walk through it together. That is to signify if you break this covenant, then this will happen to you. You will be cut up. You will be slaughtered because you broke the covenant. God says to Abram, as these animals have been slaughtered, may this happen to me if I ever break my covenant with you. See, Abram doesn't go through those animals. It is God in the vision who passes through it and he sears the, 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 the um, because he's a ball of fire, he sears the meat. Would have tasted nice, but anyway. God covenants with Abram, without Abram saying, yes, I want a part in this covenant, God says, no, this is my devotion to you, and if I ever break it, then may I be slaughtered. God banks on his life in this covenant to Abram. That is huge. So in other words, if God changes the terms of the covenant. If he changes anything in the covenant that he made with Abraham, God is a liar and he should be slain. That is how serious the Abrahamic covenant is. Every part of it must be fulfilled. What does God promise Abraham? I will give you a seed. I will give you a land, and I will make you a blessing. I will make you a blessing so that other nations could be blessed in you. I will give you a land. God will not revoke that promise. Ever. Turn to Romans chapter 11. It is impossible for God to turn on this word. Look at verse 29. Paul recollects the promise that he made to Abraham and notice what he says. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It is without change. It is unchangeable. What word is he talking about? What is it that God cannot go back on? Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, 
I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. The partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until it tells us that Israel has been hardened, but it also tells us how long until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. In other words, God will not abandon them forever. He will not break his covenant with them. I need to wrap up. Um, Go to Psalm 89, I believe it is. Why should the covenant be upheld? Before you go to 89, go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. Because it connects both covenants. God is not allowed to ever rescind on his covenant. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. I want you to note the reoccurring phrase. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, you shall lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is not Solomon. How do we know that? Well, go to Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord, take note of the language, will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Why does it sound familiar? Because that is a reaffirmation of the Davidic covenant. God promises to keep the word that he made to David, just like he did with Abram. Why can God not go back on his word? Look at 89, Psalm 89. Why can he never rescind on his covenants? Look at verse 34 of 89. I will not violate my covenant. End of discussion. I will never, it's, it's written in the strongest form of negation, I will never violate my covenant. Take notice, or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offering shall endure forever. Take note of this. 
His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Israel, as long as you see the sun and the moon, know this. I am devoted to the covenant I made with David and I will never ever turn back on it. So then, if God promises a throne and a king to be on the throne, what do you think they expected? A throne and a king on the throne. However, if prophets meaning can only be reinterpreted through the lens of the New Testament, then what God says here is a lie. If there is no literal throne in Jerusalem, if there is no literal reign on the earth, if there is no kingdom that is given to the Son on this realm where he was rejected, then God lied to David and to Abraham because the Abrahamic covenant points forward to the Davidic covenant because God will fulfill it. In other words, The Abrahamic covenant cannot be fulfilled without the Davidic covenant because it's when the king reigns that the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. That is why eschatology makes no sense if you mess with the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. Why is the literal fulfillment of eschatological prophecies important? Because the character of God depends on it. That is why it matters what we believe about end times. Let me end with this. God uses prophecy in the Old Testament to demonstrate that he is God. In Isaiah chapter 40 and following, it starts in 34, but 40 predominantly and following, he calls to Israel and says, fine, you want to worship idols. Go ahead. Speak to them. Call to them. Tell them to tell me what will be next. What do we call that? Prophecy. Eschatological prophecy, because that is looking forward to something that will take place. But then he goes further. God goes further and says, don't just tell me what is going to take place, because anybody can just guess, and maybe one in a million you could be right, right? Nostradamus was right one in a million times. But bring it about. Don't just tell me how it's going to take place, but also accomplish the very thing that you prophesy. Why does God make that claim? Why does he make that demand of every idol? Because there's only one God that can tell the end from the beginning. It's not just telling the future. It's God bringing about his eternal plan. Psalm 89 is about the throne of the Son that will sit in his kingdom and he will reign forever. In other words, God works all of history towards that end. And if he fails... He is not God. That is why eschatology matters because it all points to God fulfilling the decree that he has determined before anything ever began. If Old Testament prophecies are then not what they say they are, then God has failed and God has lied and we are in danger of being heretics. It is not a simple matter of choosing the best view in eschatology. It's following God's form of hermeneutic. 
God understands his prophecies very literally because he knows he will bring it about. Therefore, we must understand what God says very literally because he will bring it about. Now, there are at least five areas of significance when it comes to eschatology. There is a rapture, there is a tribulation, there is a second coming, there's a millennium, and there's an eternal state. All those can be literally understood from Scripture. But if you want to know more about that, you have to come back next week. How should we respond to eschatology? Well, Revelation 22 tells us, don't change anything in this book. Don't change it. If God reveals how things will end, if he reveals by his nature and he banks on his own holiness that it will come out the way that it's supposed to come out, you can bank on it. It will come out that way. Eschatology matters to God. And as a net result of that, John says, I should say, God says to John, or the angel says to John, worship God. Thank him for who he is because he's about to bring about that which he promised. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your great kindness and grace in not giving us a book that is filled with mysteries. We do not need a code cracker to tell us how things will end. We do not need a key. We just need to believe that you have promised that it will end the way that you said it would end. Forgive us, Lord, for not fully comprehending the scope of your revelation. Forgive us for not being faithful to choose that which honors you, but meddling with your prophecy. We pray for those who are in camps that, that do not fully understand the weight of changing the meaning of the text, Lord. Forgive us. Help us to honor you, to be faithful to you in following the inherent hermeneutic that is in your word. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the hope that you have given to us in the coming of our Lord, our Savior, your Son, the King, Jesus Christ. We thank you in his name we pray. Amen.